Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 135 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with playwright Glenn Berger, who wrote the script for the Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. That show, which had music composed by rock stars Bono and Edge from the band U2, and which was being directed by Julie Taymor, director of the Broadway musical The Lion King, initially seemed like a dream job, but it ultimately turned into a harrowing six-year-long nightmare, which Berger recounts in hilarious detail in his new memoir, Song of Spider-Man. And now, here's our interview with Glenn Berger. All right, so we're here with Glenn Berger. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so this is a show for fantasy and science fiction fans, and I noticed in your book you say that prior to Spider-Man, there had been Broadway shows for both Star Trek and Lord of the Rings. So just tell us a bit about what sort of track record did these sorts of fantasy and science fiction shows have on Broadway? Well, now that you mention it, uh, not so hot off the top of my head. Uh, You know, I suppose uh, Superman was a Broadway show in the mid-60s, I think, and uh, that did better than people were expecting, but... uh, didn't last that long, and then they tried to revive it recently, um, but I don't think it made it to Broadway. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I would say it's a challenging genre. But you guys, somehow you were confident, pretty confident, though, that Spider-Man was going to be a big hit? Yes, we were very confident. Um, and I, I think part of it had to do with uh, the unique uh, characteristics of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. He seemed to have a more of a sense of humor than, say, um, you know, uh, anyone in Lord of the Rings or um, Clark Kent, for that matter. You know, and Marvel sort of specialized in, you know, the sort of everyday angst of, you know, say, a teenager, and uh, we felt that might translate better to the stage. And so how did you first get involved with the Spider-Man musical? Well, um, Julie... Tamar uh, was the uh, director of the piece. She'd come on board uh, through Neil Jordan, who was the book writer, the script writer for the piece, who had come on board because Bono and Edge had uh, signed up even before that. And they got their friend Neil Jordan to write the script. Julie didn't really like the direction that Neil was going in, and so she let him go and um, was then casting it out for a new book writer. And... Um, I don't know. There's a process. <laughs> There's a few different playwrights she was looking at, and um, she liked, I guess, what I had to offer. Well, tell us about the role that George W. Bush played in, in getting you that part. <laughs> uh, the, the final uh, part of the uh, playwright selecting process had to do with she asked maybe six or seven playwrights to um, come up with a sample scene. And uh, I didn't really like this assignment, but I thought, well, all right, let me think of what I could do for a sample scene. And um, I was <laughs> remembering um, uh, this sort of, you know, we have these little fantasies in the back of our head. I was kind of fed up with George W. Bush at this moment. And I was trying to think of a way to, um, you know, what would be a way to sort of, you sort of, do them in without making the martyr of them. And I, I kept thinking about, well, you know, if only a piano could drop on them. And then I 
thinking more and more about what sort of cynicism that would uh, require to drop a piano on somebody, uh, not make a martyr out of them. And that got me thinking about the Green Goblin on top of the Chrysler building throwing a piano down on um, the citizens of New York, um, on the little ants down below because he had such disdain for them. And uh, from that point forward, I, the scene wrote itself uh, with, the Goblin and uh, Spider-Man on top of the Chrysler building and a piano because the musical, you know, a piano made perfect sense. You could start the scene with uh, Green Goblin does Liberace and then end it with that. And uh, so I wrote this scene and uh, I guess it got me the job. And so, you, yeah, so you come onto the play and at first things seem to be going really, really well. Tell us about those early days when everything just seemed to be going well. Well, you know, you you never know uh, when you're working with new collaborators what they're going to be like, you know, if they're going to uh, be more concerned about uh, things less artistic than you. But uh, the, what struck me immediately working with Julie and Bono and Edge is they were, when we were together, so, so very focused and so very enthusiastic about the material and about uh, coming up with um, something beautiful. Uh, you know, it wasn't, um, I think in your times, if you were, you said this the show conceived in cynicism and it just, he couldn't be more wrong. It was conceived in a sort of naive idealism. And, uh, it, there was, um, I'd say a lot of high spirits early on. Uh, everyone just, uh, seemed to, um, click together and, uh, we thought we were coming up with some pretty great stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a part in the book where you're talking about how how you and Julie go to a train station and you're on opposite trains and you're still shouting ideas to each other across the tracks. It just sounds so. Yeah, well, Julie so is just Julie is, you know, she's tireless, uh, and you know, I, I that's I, that's what I'm looking for in a collaborator as well. So you know, it'd be nothing to stay up until four in the morning and then you know, by eight in the morning, um, you know, we're back in it, and you know coming up with new ideas and all the rest of it. And it's, it's very, um, it's very carbonating, very heady to be in that kind of, um, creating mode. Now, except one thing that wasn't so great at this time was your financial situation. There's this memorable scene where, uh, you, uh, you're at dinner with some people and they decide to split the check. Uh, tell us about that. (laughs) We were in, uh, we were in Dublin. Uh, we had just, um, Come out of um, some great uh, writing sessions with uh, Bono and Edge and Julie, and um, it was our last night. And we went over to—I um, can't remember the name of the hotel that Bono and Edge actually um, partly own—and um, we had dinner there. And um, yeah, at the end of the night, <laughs> you know, Edge gets out his wallet and says, "You know, don't worry, guys, I'll, I've got this." And Julie said, "No, no, no, we'll we'll all split it." And you know, I'm looking around the table. There's you know, Bono and Edge and Julie Taymor and these producers, all of them have uh, very healthy bank accounts. And at that moment, you know, I, I've got nothing. Um, and uh, so I'm sweating bullets, but I can't let them know that um, I don't have any money because it just it doesn't look good. What kind of writer are you if you don't have any money? So um, you know, I was ready to, <laughs> to just destroy my children's college funds to pay for the meal. But uh, at the last moment, Edge and Bono insisted that they would pay for it. After all, they owned the hotel. Well, well right. And, and, uh, as, and, and as the writer on the Spider-Man project, you weren't going to get paid until it actually opened, right? So 
that... yeah it, it's a very it's a tricky business because uh the you know the producers are busy trying to raise money and all the rest of it and and uh the um people call the creatives, the creatives, the writers, the composers, they don't get paid except for just, a, honestly, a very little bit um, at the beginning, um, and it's all back-end. You know, you don't get paid until it goes up, and um, and if it goes up and then it goes down, that, you know, immediately that means you've just lost <laughs> about five years of your life where you could have been taking other jobs. So it's a, it's a risky business. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so tell us about the story that you guys came up with. Uh, you introduced this character called Arachne. Why did you introduce that character? Well, truly, you know, when she was still working with Neil Jordan before I came on board, um, and Neil, by the time he left, he had submitted like an outline, but he hadn't even submitted a script yet. Um, it was determined, uh, especially by Julie, that... Um, she wanted to do, you know, when you have a comic book or, or a bunch of movies, you can do, you know, a number of different stories. But here we only had, you know, basically one two and a half hour story to, you know, capture everything there was to capture in this sort of Spider-Man uh, universe. And so she was looking for something just a little weightier than uh, one particular villain and um and uh for practical reasons too she was looking for a female voice um we knew that we were going to have a green goblin in it and a whole lot of male characters um and a really strong female character that wasn't mary jane uh was uh, high on her priority list so she was uh paging through the first pages of, uh, I guess, the Ultimate Spider-Man issue number one, and saw uh, Norman Osborn mention uh, the myth of Arachne, and, you know, the little light bulb went off over her head. Um, this uh, idea of uh, this Greek um, woman who challenges the gods and comes up short, the idea of hubris sort of fit in really well with them. Um, you know, the uh, Spider-Man universe. And um, so we, we went on from there. And could you say a bit more about why Julie Tamor was so enamored with the character of Arachne? I mean, did, would it be fair to say that she saw herself as Arachne in a way? Well, you know, every artist has to, in a certain extent, identify with the characters they're, they're writing about. She did see... Um, I, I mean, I, you know, yeah, maybe to a certain extent, but certainly not to the extent where she thought she actually was <laughs> Arachne. But she she did, I mean, I would say that she did sympathize with Arachne. There certainly are interpretations of the myth where Arachne was uh, so full of hubris, uh, and that's why she was punished. And um, Julie saw the story slightly differently, That um, that really she was punished for daring to create something as good as the gods. So, um, you know, what she was really intrigued by in the story of Arachne, too, is, uh, and the way that she wanted it treated in uh, our story, in Turn Off the Dark, was that Arachne was going to start off as this, uh, this uh, strong woman who is then laid low and then becomes this sort of... Um, 
gentle patron spirit for uh, Peter Parker, and who then sort of evolves into someone who sees Peter Parker as her salvation, and then when that doesn't pan out, she turns into this, you know, demigoddess of vengeance. And uh, Julie liked the sort of complexity of that arc. And now, so the character of Arachne is not really directly taken from the Spider-Man comics. So how did the Spider-Man fans react when news of this character leaked out? Um, you know, a lot of them um, flipped out, but a lot of them will flip out over anything. So <laughs> it's really, uh, that wasn't a complete concern to the team early on. Um, you know, the feeling was, well, who 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 would we have as a really strong female villain. Um, there aren't that many in the Spider-Man uh, catalog. Um, you know, so, so Julie never felt like that was really a viable alternative. There was that uh, Spider-Wasp woman who kind of came down from the astral plane and um, made trouble for Peter. And, uh, you know, so we took elements from various things in there issues. But yeah, no, the fanboys weren't, weren't very happy. But they weren't happy with the idea of a musical in general. They were very concerned early on about um, you know, how... Uh, I mean, because the, I think these, um, you know, these fans, and rightly so, they see themselves as sort of self-appointed uh, guardians of um, Spider-Man's integrity, you know, as a character, and uh, they saw a musical on Broadway was just going to just really um, destroy the brand. Well, and you yourself were actually early on feeling like this might be just a ridiculous idea to do a Spider-Man musical. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a funny thing, you know, when you're writing anything, you kind of have to put yourself into a, a sort of brainwashed trance where you convince yourself, whatever you're working on, that this is a really good idea. And every now and then, you kind of come out of the trance and you realize, wait, what that heck goes? What are we doing? This is ridiculous, you know, no matter what it is, really. Um, and uh, I came out of that trance a few times early on um, in this show. Um, you know, I mean, and if you, just on the, on the, um, surface of things uh, when you're imagining you know the Green Goblin singing you know, on top of the Chrysler building in, in his costume it, it does become a little ridiculous seen in a certain light um, but then seen in another light it makes perfect sense you want huge mythic stories involving you know gods and monsters you know that that's what the you know I'm musicals that were being done around uh, the fires, you know, 40,000 years ago. That's what it was. It was singing and dancing, you know, with gods and monsters. Yeah, and, and in particular, I've heard you make the point uh, heroes with animal powers is something very primal that goes back into prehistory. Yeah, well, that was Julie's um, her, her first real attraction to uh, the idea of Spider-Man was that this, you know, everyone kept saying, oh, she's slumming because it's you know, it's kind of pop culture. And, you know, Julie's feeling was, well, it, there's a reason why Spider-Man is so popular, and it's not because, you know, of the pop culture elements of it. It's that underneath there's the uh, very powerful, archetypical, um, 
you know, story um, structures that kind of speak to us in a, you know, union way. So, yeah, she, she, you know, if you think about what human beings have always been drawn to in their art, especially their drama, when you look at the those cave walls, you know, that were made 20,000 years ago, you see, uh, you know, a depiction of a... Um, it looks like a, it's, you know, the, the legs of a man and then sort of the antlers of some giant um, elk. And, you know, it's believed, though, this was a, a shamanic, uh, you know, figure that must have figured in somehow in the, um, you know, in the, the religious rituals, you know, at the time. There's this, uh, this fascination that humans have had with uh, humans fusing with the uh, powers of an animal. Yeah, yeah. Well, so tell us in the show, tell us about the Geek Chorus. So this is an idea that showed up before I showed up. Um, the concern was that there was a whole lot of material, especially in Act One, the origin story, um, that was going to be hard to get through in, in just, you know, an hour, hour and a half. Um, and so we needed some device to uh, bring this um, audience uh, quickly from plot point to plot point when we needed it. And um, Julie had this idea that there would be these four comic book geeks who would sort of be kind of like a Greek chorus um, commenting on the story, moving us forward when we needed to. Um, she saw them as, uh, you know, four very energetic extra voices to add to the mix. And... Um, so, uh, but the tricky thing is, uh, once I got on board, was really figuring out how they were going to um, sound and how they were going to uh, fit into the story in a way that didn't um, totally disrupt the flow. Yeah, well, and I mean, you say in the book that when you're working on this geek, on, on writing this geek chorus, that you're also getting this internet rage from geeks. And you say you, you realize that your geeks have to be like these internet geeks, that they have to be protective, unfair, dubious, melodramatic defenders of the pure. I mean, yeah, it was it was fascinating kind of um, uh, uh, observing the, the geek in, in his natural habitat. Uh, you know, it was like poking um, an ant nest, you know, and they scurry out every time a new piece of information about the show came out. Uh, you know, you'd see... Um, you know, what what you found um, were these um, really uh, endearingly uh, passionate and earnest, um, you know, true believers. And I thought, like, if we could harness that energy and, and get into the show, um, it would be it would be great. It'd be fascinating. I mean, what do you think is a fair expectation for a fan to have about how faithful and adaptation will be. I, I don't know if you've ever seen An Evening with Kevin Smith where he talks about this director who wanted to make a Superman movie where Superman wore black and didn't fly and all this stuff that you're like, this, that's, just, that's just not Superman. Like, where, where is that line? Right, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, the, 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 you do... Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky balance because uh, every artist needs to feel like they're not just, you know doing data entry, you know, they, they need to feel like they're um, contributing something to the, um, to the iconography. And, um, you know, there was a, a meeting we had uh, early on with uh, Joe Quesada over at Marvel, and, and he sort of did convey to us 
this sense that, you know, Spider-Man's been around for, at that time, uh, been around for almost 50 years, and all these writers and um, inkers and artists um, have been contributing and adding uh, with a lot of thought and artistry to um, just who Peter Parker and Spider-Man is and what this universe is. And um, he did convey this sense, certainly to me, that um, it wasn't really fair for us to mess with that, you know, that we needed to sort of respect, um, you know, how Spider-Man got to this place in our culture at this time. Um, so, you know, I think it is very fair of the um, uh, fans to, um, you know, expect a lot of uh, respect for the material. That said, uh, you know, they're also going to howl if it's, you know, just boringly by rote, you know. Um, what you want to do is, like, is find sort of new ways of telling the story um, while making sure you know, uh, opening up new perspectives into the story without totally changing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing when you met uh, when you met with Marvel that you mentioned, one thing that really struck me is uh, they wanted this to be a family friendly show, and you say that you find this kind of baffling because you say your typical Spider Man comic was chock full of grisly deaths and women penciled and inked in just the way a sex starved adolescent boy would want women penciled and inked. The show seemed perfectly chaste in comparison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, and it's very hard to know until this is before, uh, you know, before you see the costumes, before you see, you know, dances, like, uh, is, are they going to be choreographed? And, you know, how many gyrations, you know, are these women going to do? How many, you know, you don't really have a, a very clear idea of um, how, you know, quote unquote racy it's going to be um, until it's up there on the stage, you know. You don't know how dark, literally dark, it's going to be until the lighting designer has um, done his work. Um, at the time, uh, it seemed incredibly chaste. Uh, Marvel was a little concerned, um, having seen the reading, um, that there was, you know, some suggestiveness, but uh, we felt that they were sort of um, needlessly extrapolating, you know, what, what they were going to see. You know, like in the theater, and, and Julie's sort of used to this, everything is sort of implied. It's never, never really see things graphically in the same way that you do in a movie. And so when Arachne is hanged at the beginning of the show, because that's in the myth, um, you know, Marvel is picturing something really grisly. But on stage, you don't do it that way. It's all very you know, representative. Yeah, yeah. Well, so in, in your book, uh, speaking of the theater, you quote Boris Aronson's Rules of Theater, which is rule number one, in every theatrical production, there's a victim. And rule number two, don't be the victim. Uh, what is it about theater that just makes it so that almost there has to be this sort of human sacrifice in every show? I would love to figure that one out. I don't, I don't know. Um, you, you see it all the time. You see this kind of strange inability sometimes to tell the whole truth to, you know, people, to their collaborators and things. And, um, yeah, I, I, I honestly, it's, I have no idea why, why it should be so hard, but it is. Well, tell us about some of the things that started to go wrong on Spider-Man the Musical. What, 
what was your first uh, inkling that things were going wrong, and what were some of the <laughs> the highlights of uh, of the disasters that ensued? Well, here's the thing, it, it, you know, and, and I think this happens um, frequently, not just with Spider Man, but on Spider Man, it was just such a bigger scale. We had a, a reading of uh, the script in uh, 2007. And it went so well. It went gangbusters, and everyone agreed um, that it was um, that, that we were on our way. And then we had this uh, flying workshop in Los Angeles, um, about a year later, where all the flying and technical stuff seemed like it was going to work. Um, and then we got into uh, rehearsals um, finally, um, and we were in a sort of uh, another building while the theater, the um, people were building the set in the theater. And those rehearsals in that room where there was no set and no costumes or anything, uh, the show still seemed like it was working perfectly. Um, and it wasn't really until we got into uh, tech, which is when we put you know, the, um, the actors on stage and we start bringing in all the, you know, technical elements that um, maybe the very first inklings that something wasn't going to be quite um, perfect about the show. After all, the, we, there was an ending that we were counting on, this huge web net that was going to descend from the uh, ceiling, and that was going to be um, the uh, forum for, for the final battle between Arachne and Peter Parker, and having spent a million dollars on this web net, uh, we learned really only about two weeks before tech began that it wasn't going to work. And I think we were in a little bit of denial about that, because without that web net, we didn't have an ending, hmm. suddenly. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the ending of Act One was going to be this battle uh, on the Chrysler building that I had written for my audition piece between Goblin and Peter Parker. And the only reason that was the end of Act 1 instead of the end of the show was because we were going to top it with this spectacular thing inside this uh, web net um, at the end of Act 2, and we suddenly didn't have it. Um, and then, and then you know, once you're in tech and you start putting these pieces together, you begin seeing that a lot of the things that you'd sort of imagined uh, happening, a lot of the technical pieces that you were sort of counting on either didn't work or didn't work quite like we were hoping or uh, certain things that were very clear when you were reading the stage directions suddenly weren't clear when you had them up on stage. Um, our 2007 reading, I read all the stage directions. I read really detailed stage directions. Everyone in the audience, in their mind's eye, could see the show, and consequently, the story made sense to them. And now here we were on stage in tech, and some of those crucial story elements weren't being conveyed. Um, and even then, you think, well, okay, but this is just tech. It'll become clearer once we refine it. Um, so you don't really think you're in just terrible trouble until, you know, the first previews and audiences are seeing it and you still don't have a solution. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, those technical problems led to a number of injuries on the set, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, it, of course, was, uh, from our point of view, not, not to uh, 
downplay the injuries, but from our point of view, we were it, it was we thought the injuries were getting a little uh, over hyped. Um, there was this one particular maneuver, um, which was this sort of backflip that Spider-Man did during um, his first reveal, and uh, he flips forward towards the lip of the stage. And then this gigantic uh, ramp, which is part of the um, stage, uh, descends in order for him to do this backflip. And um, it didn't descend fast enough. And so when he flipped back, the floor wasn't lowered enough for him to get a clean landing. And um, and he broke his foot. Um, and uh, that didn't make it out in the press, but um, when we had a, a lot of um, uh, publicity agents come to see a sort of uh, presentation during our uh, rehearsals, um, another dancer uh, performed that maneuver, and again, the ramp didn't lower uh, fast enough, even though uh, we thought we had the safeguards in place, and uh, he broke his wrist. and. Uh, when that accident made it into the press and then news of the other accident made it into the press, then things began to really heat up. And then, of course, um, and then it just went downhill from there on opening night. On the first preview, um, our um, actors who played Arachne um, sustained a concussion when a little uh, carabiner on, a, on the makeshift web net that we had uh, for the ending, um, it conked her on the back of the head. And um, it was a fluke thing that um, she was out for the next three weeks because of it. And then right around the time that she came back was when uh, Chris Tierney, who was uh, our, um, what was called the hero flyer, he was the main Spider-Man who swung around the theater. He um, a, a safety cable hadn't been uh, attached um, to uh, the back of his costume, total just human error, and, uh, and he fell 30 feet. And um, did, uh, he, <laughs> he uh, that was hard. Uh, he cracked ribs and, you know, um, sustained all sorts of injuries. He wound up coming back to the show in May, which is, was a miracle. It was a miracle that he survived the fall. Yes. Yeah. So there was all these injuries and everything. And then you also had financial problems stemming from the death of your producer, Tony Adams, too. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm getting all clammy just thinking about it all again. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, Tony Adams was the original producer of Spider-Man. He's the Irish impresario, beautiful man. He's the fellow who uh, convinced Marvel in the first place to let him uh, do Spider-Man the musical and he could have persuaded anyone to do anything. He was just that sort of person and uh, he's the one you know, persuaded Bono and Edge to get on board and um, after a whole lot of wrangling um, this was uh, early on in the process uh, back in like, I'm going to say 2005 um, he, he finally got all the contracts in order and went over to um, Edge's apartment to um, have him signed the deal. Um, Bono had already signed, Julia had already signed, everything was finally coming together. And um, Edge uh, went to go get a pen, and when he came back, he found Tony uh, Adams um, 
slumped over. And uh, Tony Adams, who was still in his 50s, uh, was dead the next day from a stroke. And uh, that um, early on put a, put a wrench in things. It didn't really occur to anyone at the time that that was going to be, a, in some ways, a fatal blow. Um, his partner, uh, David Garfinkel, who was um, sort of the behind-the-scenes legal fellow, he, kind of, he took over as the producer. He he did uh, Yeoman's work, but uh, he did, just didn't have um, some of the um, producerial skills and uh, people skills that Tony Adams had. And you know, who knows what sort of difference it would have made had Tony uh, survived to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys are having all these problems, and then the the critics start weighing in. And you quote Scott Brown from New York Magazine. He calls the play. Hyperstimulated, vivid, lurid, overeducated, underbaked, terrifying, confusing, distracted, ridiculously slick, shockingly clumsy, unmistakably monomaniacal, and clinically bipolar. Uh, what was yeah. it? What's it like for you as a writer to get that sort of feedback on something that you've written? <laughs> and that, that was the good review because we, yeah. we, we at least had fun uh, <laughs> watching it. Um, you know, and I, I, like you said before. Um, uh, up to a certain point, we started working on it, I started working on it in 2005, and up to 2009, it had been nothing but fun, really. Uh, and not only did we get a lot of um, good vibes from uh, people who had, uh, you know, read the script and, and whatnot, the music that Bond on Edge had written was good. The demos were really good very uh, varied and um, tuneful and um, upbeat and uh, and somehow uh, the demos just didn't get translated into uh, you know the musical orchestra um, and then uh, in addition to that the um, main speakers had been placed behind the main set pieces and so the sound was getting all muddy and so so suddenly we had a show that um, where you know we thought we we thought we had it in the bag, and you know now we clearly didn't, and now the critics are weighing in, and people are getting injured, and um, um, and the weird thing is that we were still selling out because there's a curiosity factor, you know, any number of other factors, and so there was this window of time. We knew it was going to shut eventually, but there was. You know, usually if, if you have a show with this much, um, this many problems, it's going to open, it's going to close the next day, and that's going to be it. We knew we had maybe a couple months to come up with a fix. And, uh, you know, that we, the, one of the things a lot of Broadway shows do, they open uh, first out of town. They, you know, they'll go to Denver, they'll go to Seattle or uh, La Jolla, you know, out in San Diego, and they'll um, put on the show. And even if the uh, critics kind of uh, nail it to the wall, uh, you still have time out there to work on it. And then um, you have time to work on it between moving it to New York and getting it into New York. And then you go back in the rehearsals in New York and you have all these extra weeks. And um, we couldn't do that with Spider-Man because... Uh, New York, um, our set was so involved and so complicated and expensive, we had to install it at the Foxwoods Theater, and um, 
you know, we couldn't uh, break it down out of town and bring it into New York. And so we had to do everything just there in New York. And that meant that instead of, um, you know, going out with our uh, pants and our ankles out of town and then slowly pulling our pants up, we had to do it all under the really uh, hot glare of New York City. And that not only um, made it hard for us to um, fix things, because it gave us less time, it also uh, increased the stress inside of that building. And uh, when uh, human beings are subjected to a certain amount of stress, they, they just don't work as effectively. They don't work as effectively on their own. They don't work as effectively with each other. Well, in, in a way, the villain in this book is this uh, critic from the New York Post, Michael Riedel. Uh, you compare him in the book to J the Spider-Man character J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, t tell us about that comparison. Yeah, well, he, you know, he, <laughs> Michael Rito is he's a character. I mean, I, I, on one level, he isn't the villain any more than J. Jonah Jameson is the villain in Spider-Man. He's just an, he's an added, seemingly random um, distraction that, just makes everything a little bit harder. Like, to give Michael Riedel credit, um, he's one of the few uh, journalists out there who actually cares about what goes on on Broadway. Um, and so, you know, what you have is a situation where Michael Riedel of the Post and uh, Patrick Healy of the Times uh, were really the only ones writing about the show, but then you had, you know, 600 journalists sort of pick up on what they were writing, and before you knew it, it seemed like everybody was writing about it. Um, but Michael Riedel in particular, he gets a particular kind of uh, glee um, when uh, a show is, um, you know, foundering on the on the rocks. Um, he, he uh, you know, if, if a show is hanging onto the ledge by one hand, you know, he has no problem with stepping on that hand. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and um, it's funny when it's somebody else and when it's you, um, it's less funny. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody, everybody in, on Broadway, you know, they profess to, uh, you know, not like them, except everybody reads them. And, uh, you know, I went on a show, you know, about a year after Spider-Man closed. And um, and he's, uh, you know, we had a, a delightful conversation. Um, he knows theater. And, uh, and he just isn't interested in um, being a, a mindless uh, supporter of it, you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I watched that interview, and it just seemed like he was having the time of his life, having been, <laughs> uh, you know, written yeah, about in well, your book. Yeah, well, I mean, two, <laughs> two, uh, two things he loves is to talk about theater and um, and to talk about uh, himself, you know. <laughs> and, and, and he kind of inserted himself into the, the story of Spider-Man because um, he was uh, helpful in drumming up um, a, a lot of the animosity uh, towards the show, um, you know, he made sure that uh, news of the um, various injuries, you know, was always in the news. Um, you know, in every Broadway, not every Broadway show, but a, a number of Broadway shows have had a lot of um, 
injuries that have kind of gone, you know, underreported um, for whatever reason, Spider-Man, um, it was reported. And uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, there are certainly some people in, inside the theater who felt like he was treating us unfairly, but that's just part of the game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, you, you did have your supporters. So one of your big supporters was Glenn Beck. And uh, I don't know, what was the, you must have felt sort of conflicted about that, right? Or I don't know, what was it like having Glenn Beck be your, your biggest <laughs> yeah, poster? We'll, 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 we'll take a, well, you know, back in 2005, when I was first writing it with uh, Julian, uh, we made Norman Osborne um, a sort of, um, the reason why he was doing his things with genetics was he was convinced that humans needed to more quickly adapt to what was um, clearly going to be a climate change catastrophe in a few years. And um, Julie was saying, oh, but is that, if we make him seem liberal in that way, is that going to turn off all the potential conservative audience members? And and then she thought, oh, well, that actually turns out to be the villain. So maybe a lot of conservatives will see, you know, sort of the, you know, it, people will, will read into the show whatever political um, ideology they want to read into it. Um, and it turned out to be true years later when Glenn Beck uh, saw in um, the Spider-Man show um, a, a, an affirmation of everything that he had been sort of talking about in terms of... Um, you know, the individual rising above the situation to, um, you know, to uh, fight for liberty and justice and this, you know, climate change um, uh, proponent, um, you know, getting his comeuppance and all that. Uh, so he, he went on his radio show more than once and um, was a huge advocate for the show. And everybody was, and no one, no one had a problem with that. <laughs> Okay, so so what happens ultimately is that the director Julie Taymor gets replaced. Uh, tell us about how that happened. I think what happened for years, from the beginning of the project, there was always a hundred percent conviction that this show is going to be a massive hit. How could it not be? when you look at, you know, who was on it and the material and everything. And so the discussion was never what happens if it closes in two months. The discussion was always how soon can we get three more productions up, you know, and, and where would we go next? And, and when we make a feature film out of it, you know, who would you cast? And, and so when the time came, when it really did seem like, the writing was on the wall, I think for certain people, it was very hard to read that writing. It was very hard to get it into their head that, no, no, this show actually has maybe three weeks of life in it. And so you had a certain people um, in the theater, um, actors, most of the actors included, because they have a sixth sense for this sort of thing, because, you know, their jobs are on the line. Um, people who thought if something sort of drastic isn't done quickly, then the show, uh, with all the work that everyone's put into it, the show is going to be gone uh, inside of the month. 
And then you had another faction who said, well, if we just stay the course, we'll get there. And uh, at the end of the day, the producers couldn't convince Jewelry to, um, you know, that we were going to close. And so they um, they got someone else to uh, come in to make the changes that people felt like were the only changes that would give us any sort of shot of staying alive. Right. And so the person that they bring on, on is Phil McKinley, who's some sort of uh, circuit. He had been a circus director. Um, tell us about the direction that he took the show in um, from how it had been. You know, the the original, there was a whole lot of brainstorming, you know, after the first previews. All right, how are we going to, how could we fix this? If we don't have an ending, then is there anything we can do? How do we just stay alive? And one idea that came up that I was pushing was, well, if we move the end of the first act to the end of the second act, um, that would solve a whole lot of problems. And we'd live another day. And then, you know, we can, for the next production, you know, try to work something else out. And if we had, there was a way to do it where uh, Arachne would still be a very powerful character, but she would be um, demoted to uh, slightly to, um, to uh, so that she was now a little less important than Peter Parker. And, uh, uh, you know, Julie couldn't endorse it. And so McKinley came on board. We, you know, this was all being done in real time, so it's not like we could look for, you know, 50 directors and vet them and, um, you know, audition them. We needed, the producers needed to find somebody very fast. And um, I think Michael Cole, the producer, uh, had been working on, with Bill McKinley in another project, a big sort of epic um, arena show. And uh, so Phil came on board and he felt like one of the large problems in the show wasn't just the, uh, the structure, um, but also just the tone in general was just too um, too dark. And um, too, he thought the choreography in certain numbers was too violent. And so he came in and um, really tried to brighten things up. Right. I mean, the thing that sticks in my mind most about his approach is the Goblins Goddesses t-shirts. <laughs> well, you know, it was a very um, frantic number of months. This, we were in uncharted territory. Um, no show, really, especially of this scale. We were doing um, the old show during the night, and then during the day, new material, we'd be coming up with new material and, and folding it into rehearsals. Um, and then eventually we'd have to um, shut down the show for three weeks to do the big, big changes and then uh, reboot it. Um, and uh, so ideas were sort of flying fast and furious. And this was right around the time that Charlie Sheen was having his meltdown. So people saw a lot of similarities between Spider-Man and Charlie Sheen. So, <laughs> um <laughs> called like the trailer scene of theater. And uh and he so he had a thing about um his goddesses and, and uh so sometime at, at one moment in rehearsal, Phil McKinley um it, it came to him, oh oh, goblins goddesses, that's perfect. We'll we'll have um these kind of mutant assistants of goblin wear these T shirts and um 
uh, you know, the other people on the team thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to date itself, you know, within a month. This is, uh, that, that idea fell by the wayside eventually. But, you know, there's any number of ideas that were sort of flying around. And of course, the tech staff, well, they were all freaking out because they felt like we didn't really have enough time to implement uh, even half the changes that were being proposed, um, you know, and, and we were worried that if we shut down the show, uh, you know, in, in April, uh, that w- there'd be no show to <laughs> to uh, bring back online uh, come May. So, Right, but, but it seems like Phil's changes did ultimately turn the show into a fair financial success. Is that, is that, that's fair to say? It was always felt, and this was certainly my argument, was there was, there, 90% of the show was really, it was spectacular and beautiful, and, you know, everyone had put all this um, great work into it. Uh, you know, the, from the songs to the, the set design, everything that Julia had come up with, um, and that people, when you really broke it down, when you broke down you know, what people were having problems with with the show. Um, you could really narrow it down to like five or six things. And if you got rid of those five or six things, um, maybe the show, you know, would have a long life. You know, it wasn't like it was just, you know, horrific from beginning to end. When people, when you went in, in submission, there was this very happy buzz. And then, you know, you'd see in Act Two, you'd see the moment that people would just start scrunching up their faces and <laughs> having these incredibly painfully quizzical looks on their faces, you know, wondering, like, what's going on? Um, you know, and so uh, so the theory was, well, look, if we can just sort of tinker with this a bit, you know, maybe the show could have a life. And, um, and yeah, and, and it ran for uh, a while. Um, I mean, it ran... At the end of the day, it ran, uh, I think it had maybe 1,200 performances, which is um, more than every show ever in the history of Broadway, except for 77 Broadway shows. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, okay, so you say in the book that uh, that the Spider-Man musical, quote, wasn't a play. It was a diabolical machine built by the gods to teach humility. Uh, like, what do you think, what, what lessons do you take away from this whole experience? <laughs> oh, so many lessons. Um, there's no sure thing, is number one. Uh, number two is um, not really a lesson so much as uh, something to always remember, which is, uh, you know, uh, when you're working on, a, on something like this, or when you're working or marriage, or, or really anything, uh, you have to work with other human beings. Uh, collaboration is a very um, profound and mysterious thing at the end of the day. And as much as one can maintain uh, respect and uh, open dialogue between two people, that's critical, or else... Um, things are going to go downhill very fast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so I mentioned that you wrote a book about this whole experience called Song of Spider-Man. Just uh, what was it like writing that book? Was it traumatic, reliving all these memories, or was it cathartic? Uh, just sort of what happened? With that? No, I, I was hoping for cathartic. It was just it was <laughs> traumatic. Okay. Um, I mean, it was... I didn't... You know, the last thing I wanted to do when I... Uh, when the show finally opened... Uh, 
was relive it all. And uh, and actually, when I was writing it, you know, I would find myself yelling at the screen and, you know, getting all, you know, <laughs> clammy and palpitating. And I would make a vow to myself, all right, tomorrow, when you sit down to write, just stay detached, be very Buddhist about it. And the same thing would happen again. I'd start yelling, I'd hyperventilate. And I realized what was happening actually was that um, a lot of the uh, my memories of the show uh, weren't really just in my brain. They were recorded in my body. And in order to really um, summon the full experience of what was going on, my body had to sort of relive it too. So, you know, all the uh, excitement early on, you know, I was writing the early chapters, I'd feel these great rushes of adrenaline and happiness. And when I was writing the later chapters, I'd feel this uh, horrible clamminess and <laughs> all the rest of it. And, and then I'd reach the end and I'd feel, um, you know, uh, I'd feel a certain amount of catharsis, but then you, then there's a second draft and <laughs> you go through it all again. It was like living a, a certain amount of a um, strange purgatory. But... Uh, but but now you know it's been a year since I turned in the final um, draft and I'm beginning to find a measure of serenity. Well, that's that's good. I was I was wondering, yeah, if you just see Spider Man on a billboard or a, on a TV screen or something, does your spidey sense start to tingle and you just? Want oh yeah, to no, no, I, that, that's that's no good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't endure that. That's just gonna I'm gonna have to go into therapy for that one. <laughs> Uh, I heard you say that there's gonna that there was someone was working on a documentary that was filmed behind the scenes uh, on the Spider-Man musical. Is that ever gonna see the light of day? That's a good question. You know, Michael Cole was the producer, and his son Jacob Cole uh, had begun filming um, a documentary. Um, I guess a few months before we started rehearsal, um, and he captured more than he was expecting to capture, <laughs> and. Um, and he put together a cut. I know that. I saw two scenes um, a couple of years ago, and they were fantastic, beautiful scenes. And, uh, you know, he was envious of me writing a book because he was having a hard time getting in all the details he wanted to get into. And I was envious of him doing the, this documentary because the, the visual side of this story is just so um, staggering. Uh, However, um, I think it got tied up in uh, legal issues. So I, I'm not quite sure what the status of it is right now. Well, so uh, we're almost out of time, I guess. Is there anything um, else you want to say about just what happened after this book or what's happened to you recently, just the aftermath of this whole experience? No, you know, it's been very interesting um, having to... Uh, you know, assess and then reassess again, uh, you know, the whole story, because you don't really get uh, any sort of global perspective on it. When I was doing research for the book, you know, I went back and, and went on to the, um, you know, Facebook page of the uh, Spider-Man musical, and, you know, what gets lost a little bit in the, um, in the story is how many people actually wound up loving the show. Um, for a lot of people, because it was Spider-Man, it, it was their first musical ever. They'd never been to Broadway before, and it, was, it um, for some, it was sort of a gateway drug. You know, they they were kind of turned on to Broadway musicals in a way they hadn't before, and and a lot of them, you know, I I took um, 
my children and their classmates to see the show soon after it opened. And their eyes were just wide uh, the whole time. They would say, oh, well, it wasn't their favorite musical of all time, but it did have some of their favorite moments that they've seen. And so there, there's a, there was a, a lot to be said for the musical, but certainly for myself, um, he reflected that quote. It wasn't a musical for me. It was definitely more of a life event, you know, that <laughs> I'll be, I'm sure I'll be chewing on for some time. Yeah, yeah. And so are you working on anything now? Do you have any other writing coming up that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, you know, Broadway musical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on um, a few commissions for a few different theaters, um, and then there's this Broadway... Uh, Hypothetically, Bound for Broadway musical based on the uh, movie uh, August Rush about an um, orphan who's a musical prodigy looking for his parents. It came out a few years ago, um, a Warner Brothers film. And, uh, and yeah, I'm trying to apply as many lessons learned from Spider-Man on this one as I can. <laughs> All right, great. So we've been speaking with Glenn Berger, and his new book is called Song of Spider-Man. So, Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Glenn Berger for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Kenneth Lindholm, who just wrote us our very first iTunes review in Finland. Kenneth writes, Just want to say thank you. So many good books would have been unread if it wasn't for this podcast. I love listening to your interviews and your discussions about books and movies. I have listened to every episode that you have published, and only a handful have not been so interesting. I live in Finland and am waiting for the Worldcon in 2017, so hope to see you here soon. Kitosh. So, big thanks again to Kenneth Lindholm for that great review. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Jeff Gass, crowdfunder number 85, and Kenneth Reed, crowdfunder number 89. So, thanks guys, we really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.